0: I'm Aaron Titus. It's October 4th, 2006, and this is the Privacy Podcast. Welcome to the Privacy Podcast in its new home, AaronTitus.net slash privacy. I'm Aaron Titus. I'm also a wee bit tired now that law school has started up again, and I'm happy to announce that my daughter, Emma Eileen, was born a few weeks ago. She was 5 pounds, 12 ounces, and 18 inches long you'll be able to see updated pictures of Emma and her older brother Christopher at erintitus.net slash baby. This is my fourth show, Privacy Policy Snares and Junk Mail. Last time you made a purchase on eBay or Amazon.com or the last time you used your email address to register a product, did you ever wonder where your personal information goes, who stores it, and for how long? Perhaps you've actually taken the time to read a so-called privacy policy or two. If you have, I commend you. But if you've read closely, you might have noticed that most privacy policies don't afford you the protection you might think. In fact, some are more akin to waivers than a guarantee of rights. The usual result is junk mail. Junk mail is annoying, intrusive, and wasteful. This podcast will discuss junk mail, spam, and how to avoid both. I hate junk mail. Okay, to be more accurate, I've got a complicated relationship with junk mail. I didn't ask for it. I don't want it. It's a waste of resources and it clutters landfills. On the other hand, junk mail keeps the postal service in the black. It's the reason that a stamp doesn't cost $2.50. So where did this boil on the belly of personal privacy come from? I'm afraid we have only ourselves to blame. Simply put, it's cost effective. The only reason you get junk mail is because you and your friends respond to it. Junk mail wouldn't exist if it didn't increase sales. The sooner people stop responding to a form of media, the sooner it goes away. Take pop-up ads for example. A few years ago, they were the rage in online marketing. Then they got annoying and people started ignoring them. Now many computers have built-in pop-up filters. Too bad we can't have junk mail filters on our mailboxes. That won't happen as long as the post office sells mailing lists. So, while the world would be better without junk mail, I've developed three standards that allow me to live in a peaceful coexistence with this privacy irritation. First, I demand to know how a company got my contact information. More important than if I get junk mail is knowing how the Acpe company got my mailing address. Second, I demand the ability to completely opt out once. Third, I can peacefully coexist with mail that arrives without my name on it, or if I have specifically requested it. I want to talk about demanding to know. I always demand to know how a company got my contact information. I'll often ask a company representative this question. The first answer I usually get is, I got it from the computer. (laughs) Yeah, because I have a personal relationship with your computer. Or just slightly less sophisticated, it's public information. I then explain that even if it is public information, that still doesn't answer the question about how they got it. Raising this objection, I have talked with several company marketing directors. Many of them have pointed me to data mining companies or to public tax records. It turns out these companies get their information primarily from tax records. That's right, unfortunately, home ownership has thwarted my battle against junk mail. I live in Maryland. Here the Property Tax Code, Section 2-211, requires the tax assessor to make all real estate tax information available to the public. This public information includes, quote, the name and address of the owner. In addition, by gubernatorial mandate, the Department of Assessments and Taxation is making all of this information available online. Or in other words, it really is public information. Dave Lyon, Council Assistant Attorney General for the Department of Assessments and Taxation explained that the state of Maryland will not, under any circumstances, make an individual's name and address private. After all, the government has a legitimate interest in knowing where I live and confirming that I have paid my taxes. The public also has a legitimate interest in knowing the value of my property as a benchmark for the property value and tax assessments on surrounding properties. Future property purchasers have a legitimate interest in knowing that I actually own the property I'm purporting to sell, and in addition, the public also has an interest in open and transparent government. Public records means that I can verify that a county executive or powerful politician isn't getting a tax break. But keep in mind that Maryland is also home to Supreme Court Justices and a few diplomats. Mr. Lyon has flatly rejected a request for privacy from at least one Supreme Court Justice but he says he really feels bad for the DEA agents. Drug enforcement agents and their families can be at severe risk if a criminal finds out where they live. There are no exceptions for Supreme Court justices, law enforcement agents, victims of identity theft or domestic violence. In my opinion, that needs to change. The Supreme Court has addressed privacy in terms of quote, a reasonable expectation of privacy, but several commentators, including this one, have begun to question whether that is the best standard. For example, In light of the now legalized NSA domestic spying program, do you now have a reasonable expectation of privacy when calling a friend overseas? In light of massive subpoenaing of international and American bank records, do you have a reasonable expectation that your financial records are private? And since we know that the government has tried to subpoena keyword search records for major search engines, do you have a reasonable expectation that your searches are private? Instead, several privacy commentators now suggest that a better standard is the need for privacy instead of reasonable expectation of privacy. I generally agree. Now back to those public records. Those public records aren't the only place to get your personal information. When was the last time you clicked on that little button that says, I have read the Acme company's privacy policy and agree to it? did you actually read it? Occasionally the policy is so egregious that I refuse to do business with the company. Next time take the time to read it and look out for some common privacy snares. The first privacy snare is we don't share your personal information unless we can gain from it. Uh, Now of course no privacy policy is actually going to say those words. Instead privacy policies often assure you that they will never share your personal information with those elusive third parties. Unfortunately, the only difference between a third party and an affiliate may be a marketing agreement or merely an agreement to sell your information to another company for profit. For example, if Company A offers to purchase a list from Company B, the ensuing license can create an affiliate relationship between the companies, and voila, Company A is no longer an evil third party. In addition, large corporations may have hundreds or even thousands of subsidiaries, sister or parent companies, agent relationships, or marketing agreements. Many organizations refer to these as a family of companies, isn't that nice? And your personal information is free game to all of them. The second privacy snare is, we will share your information to the extent the law permits. What this simply says is, we won't break the law, which is something that they're not allowed to do anyway. Besides phrases like this are what I like to call legal marshmallows. They sound good, they taste good, but they have no substance. This is especially true because privacy is an evolving patchwork of legal doctrines and statutes across the country. The next privacy snare is, you can only opt out of some of our marketing, but not all of it. This is one of my least favorite. Consider KeyBank's privacy policy. Quote, Key may, from time to time, share information to jointly market other financial institutions, products, and services. Even if you opt out of internal information sharing within Key, we may share your information that identifies you. Even if you opt out of using information for marketing purposes, Key may use information to market to an individual who has had a pre-existing business relationship and to market to an individual who had a business relationship within the past 18 months. Many companies have an automated opt-in process, but a manual opt-out process. What that means is that a computer will automatically log your information and send you junk mail. But it requires a live person six to eight weeks to process your opt-out request, by which time your personal information has been propagated to dozens of internal departmental databases, never to be completely deleted. That very scenario happened to me with Kaplan. In preparation for law school, I took a Kaplan course before taking the LSAT. Notwithstanding that I scrupulously checked all of the opt-out buttons and boxes during registration, I repeatedly received marketing materials. It took months of working directly with Kaplan's sympathetic CIO to stop the mailings. As it turned out, they had a situation identical to the one I described earlier. It was nearly impossible to completely opt out of anything, no matter what the privacy policy said. The final privacy snare is... Even if you opt out, we keep your personal information on file indefinitely. This one causes me the most concern, by far, because it is such a common practice. The provision is usually not articulated in privacy policies, although it's almost universally true. Even a careful reading of an opt-out clause shows that they will only flag your information but never delete it. Thus, you may still be at risk if the organization's databases are ever compromised. You may also be at risk if that company is ever bought or sold, and you are at additional risk if the company ever upgrades their computers without properly sanitizing their hard drives. And you're also at a constant risk of hacking. I found that out the hard way when a hacker possibly obtained my name and social security number through my undergraduate university years after my graduation. It's time for this episode's privacy tip, how to avoid junk mail. The first thing to do is opt out of pre-approved credit offers. You can do that by dialing 1-888-5-OPT-OUT, that's 1-888-567-8688, or go to optoutprescreen.com, which is the official consumer credit reporting industry opt-out website. Second, don't respond to unsolicited mail if you get it you are only making junk mail more cost-effective when you do order online or otherwise you can do what I do and enter codes or bogus apartment numbers into your mailing address for example use the address to line to enter a description such as Kaplan March 17 2006 whenever I get a piece of mail from Kaplan or one of its affiliates or someone with whom they have a marketing agreement I can trace it to the transaction I made on March 17th. I also keep track of bogus apartment numbers in a spreadsheet. For example, apartment A27 is a Norton antivirus purchase that I made last year. So if anything arrives addressed to Aaron Titus apartment A27, I can trace it back to the transaction I made with Norton. Always question why a company needs your information and decide for yourself how much they actually need regardless of how many fields are marked required. And finally, never do business online with a company that does not list a phone number or alternative contact method. Well, thanks for joining me. Do you have a privacy question or an idea for a show? Email me, privacy at erintitus.net. I'm online at www.erintitus.net slash privacy. Today's music was End of the Line by Timothy C. Lee, online at podsafeaudio.com. Sound effects that I didn't do were provided by the Free Sound Project at freesound.iua.upf.edu and stonewash at stonewash.net. Sort of live and sleep-deprived from my closet, this is Aaron Titus.